There is research that looks at what's happening to communities that are becoming more polarized, and what they've concluded is many of those communities have lost their news sources. So when you lose that, you lose the ability to kind of moderate and understand where the middle is. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is your host, Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for this throwback episode about local press, ghost papers, news deserts, and the future of democracy. This program took place at the beginning of this year, January 2020, and this is another one of those programs that seems to be getting even more relevant as time goes on because of the way we're trending, in this case, with the local press. I was actually at this event in person, and I learned so much about life inside the industry and about the troubling trends happening now and the impacts to all of us and our communities. The closing of local hometown newspapers around the country and the massive changes in general to the media industry are feeding our lack of trust and our growing partisan divide. Right here in our hometown, we've seen our media environment change dramatically over recent years. The question is, can we get a handle on it before it's too late? Our panelists offer creative ideas and hope for keeping local journalism alive and healthy for decades to come. This program is broken up into two episodes. In this one, we hear from former Tallahassee Democrat publisher Skip Foster and Capitol Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald, Mary Ellen Klass. And also the facilitator of this program, Jennifer Portman, shares her wisdom and perspective. In the next episode coming out in two weeks, we add Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Bob Sanchez and editor of Tallahassee Reports, Steve Stewart. Plus the other panelists stick around during part two for Q&A. Liz Joyner, Village Square's Executive Director, will tell you a little bit more about the panelists. So let's turn it over to Liz to kick off the program. I'm Liz Joyner. On behalf of the Village Square Board of Directors and their families, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Dinner at the Square, our 13th season, a local press, ghost papers, news deserts, and the future of democracy. Our program is part of a full year of programming we're calling the Year of Living Locally, focusing on the power of local communities to overcome both the partisan divide and also to to create intelligent solutions to the problems that confront us. I really want to walk out of this room with as many people who have a determination that we will keep local journalism alive and well in this community, that it will... 
and, and I think it's going to take that kind of determination. It takes a community, and ultimately, it, it, it's, it's us. We're the ones who decide. So I'm going to just introduce everyone here this evening so we can just be right in the conversation all the way through. Joining us for the first part of the conversation, and there, um, feel free to make your way on up, is Jennifer Portman is our facilitator for the evening. Recently named the National Enterprise Editor for USA Today. Uh, lucky for us, she'll be staying in Tallahassee. Jennifer was with the Tallahassee Democrat more than a decade, first as an investigative reporter and most recently as the Democrat's news director. Jennifer hails from Los Angeles. She earned her master's degree from Northwestern's famed Medell School of Journalism, beginning her journalism career in 1995 as a general assignment reporter at the News Ledger in Springfield, Missouri. Even if you haven't met Jennifer... I'm pretty sure that you know her because she's really been center of gravity of so many of the important stories in our community over the years. Skip Foster was the 10th publisher was the 10th publisher of the Tallahassee Democrat coming to town in 2015 after serving as publisher of the North Florida Daily News. A native of Lakeland, Florida, Skip began his career as a sports writer. It is not an understatement, I believe, to say that his recent departure from the Democrat was really a gut punch to our community. Marion Class is the Capitol Bureau Chief for Miami Herald, where she covers government and politics and focuses on investigative and accountability reporting. During 2018-19 academic year, Mary Ellen was awarded a Neiman Fellowship to study at Harvard University and was named the 2019 Murray Martyr Neiman Fellow in Watchdog Journalism. And after Jennifer, Skip, and Mary Ellen have done a deep dive on tonight's um, topic, they'll be joined by Bob Sanchez. Bob. As a longtime member of the Miami Herald editorial board, Bob won a Pulitzer Prize for a series of editorials reporting on the conditions of Haitian immigrants. He's taught English and journalism at Florida High, FSU, and Florida A&M. He also served as the director of public policy at James Madison Institute and is a veteran. And our final panelist for the evening, Steve Stewart, give a wave and applause. Steve is the editor of Tallahassee Reports, a local nonprofit watchdog news source. Steve received his master's degree in political science from FSU and went on to work with the Office of Public Counsel, where he provided testimony on behalf of consumers of Florida before the Florida Public Service Commission. Without further ado, if you're all mic'd up and ready to roll, Jennifer. I'm here with two great people who I think that you all know by reputation and I'm lucky to know personally um, and who are all survivors of this industry that you all are here. Speak and must, for yourself. Well, you're still here. I guess that was bad. I'm sorry. Still trying to make our way. I'm sorry. In what has definitely been a, not an easy industry to be in for me the last 25 years, I think. We've all been there for a long time. So I think that we don't want this to become too maudlin of a discussion because we are still doing terrific journalism every single day. I have a really good perspective from being in the newsroom here in Tallahassee for a long time and helping to run that newsroom. And now from a national perspective, I'm reading even more stuff. And I will tell you that the content is alive and well out there. We just need to figure out this business model so that we can keep paying for really great journalism. So the content piece we are nailing with some of our amazing local journalists here and nationally. So I do want to give a plug for that. Mary Ellen has made, took a year off studying exactly what we are talking about tonight. So I want to let her have the floor first to sort of set the table for where we are right now. 
Mary Ellen. Sure. Well, thank you. It's, it's so encouraging to know that you all are here because you want to talk about local journalism. This is something that when I started my career 30-some years ago, I never expected that the trajectory would be going downhill instead of upwards. You always think your industry is going to get bigger. But instead, we have watched as the business model that for the last half century newspapers depended on has imploded. And, and that is because something new has changed our lives, and that's the Internet, which we all probably would not want to go away. I would never want the internet, I would never go backwards if I had an option, except that the internet is exactly the thing that killed, killed newspapers, or is killing newspapers, because for years we had this business model that was dependent on advertising, and advertising was the way we were able to subsidize things like watchdog and explanatory journalism relating to government, because you all wanted to see the FSU football, and you'd pick up the paper and you'd get a story also about school board rezoning and, you know, traffic jams and, and problems like that. But that model has disappeared because the internet is now, you know, 87% of all advertising goes to Facebook and Google because they know what to do with it better than the, than the newspaper industry figured out. So because our advertising is now going somewhere else, we have lost, we are dependent on, on subscriptions. And, and that's led to about a 60% drop in journalism jobs in the last 15 years. So that's where we are. It has certainly been a challenge. Um, you know, Skip, you've been on the business side of this. I mean, can you give us a perspective from, from where you've sat? I mean, we've all sat through that. I mean, is anything that you can add to that? Well, I was on the business end of something. I'm not sure... Uh... <laughs> James at least thought that was funny. So, uh, <laughs> Jeff, thank you. Well, look, Mary Ellen makes excellent points as usual. Digital traffic at newspapers is off the charts, right? We're getting, I mean, numbers that don't even mean anything to you. Millions and millions of page views. And if you say, well, page views isn't a way to measure traffic because that's kind of drive-by, we agree and we look at all sorts of things like time spent on site and who's returning to the site and how, you know, what, what, how sticky is their time. And those numbers are off the charts. The, the problem is in the, when pre-internet, print was the only way you could reach people, right? Uh, only way you could reach our influential, affluent, engaged audience. All of those digital eyeballs and engagement we have now there are many different ways to reach them. And what newspapers have said is, well, we're going to get in that business of doing digital marketing, not just to our own audience, but social media advertising and search engine optimization and stuff like this. And we're doing it, and we do it really well. Carrie Throw is here and has a team that sells that stuff and has platinum-level solutions for businesses in town. The problem is there are a lot of people selling that stuff, and they're not carrying around the cost structure of all of these journalists you see in here. That's a real economic challenge, right? You know, banks are kind of commoditized. You know, they want to, they pr pretend to be different, but they're all the same. They all got about the same rates. They give you the same cookies and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, if one of them was carrying around the cost structure of local journalism, you'd say, oh, well, that's the one that's in big, big, big trouble, right? And so that's what we're really facing right now from a business standpoint in our industry. 
Well, and Marianne, can you talk a little bit about what that impact has been, you know, managing decline as we talk about, because every year we have less to work with in newspapers than we did the year before, so let that sink in. Every year we have less to do what everyone wants more of and has been that for a long time. Talk a little bit to us with your research about what the impact has been on newsrooms kind of in terms of resources. Right. Well, you know, as the, as the business model has declined and less revenue is coming in, we've watched this enormous consolidation, which we, we just witnessed in the last two months here in Tallahassee as Gatehouse became Gannett and Gannett consolidated. And um, we, we've obviously seen that before as other news organizations around the country have consolidated. Well, with consolidation comes streamlining, and that means reduction of jobs. And just because you have fewer people doesn't necessarily mean that the product is getting better. Um, in fact, you know, you have fewer, res fewer people to do the journalism, and that means that you're going to have less content. And when you have less content, that also means you're discouraging more people about the product. And so that leads to fewer news sales. I think it's a, a never-ending decline, right? One of the challenges newspapers have, you've heard this term newspaper of record, right? And what that means is you're responsible for everything. And the problem is that I have this old saying, everybody thinks that everybody thinks about the newspaper like they do, right? So we devote a lot of resources to FSU sports because there's lots and lots of interest in that. But there are people, and many of you in this room, that couldn't give a flip about FSU sports, right? So for you, that's wasted resource. Then there's the people that don't care about politics. They only care about recipes. And the people that don't care about recipes, they only care about the puzzles. And people that don't, you know. And so when you're responsible for everything and your resources are shrinking, you just become disappointers, like chronic <laughs> disappointers, which is really frustrating, right? Because the work that we are doing and we're having to pick and choose, and I keep talking in the present tense, so just don't start crying if I do that. But <laughs> the things that we choose, we have to make those tough decisions all the time. And it's heartbreaking when you have to say, hey, take your own picture and we'll put it online somewhere or do something like that. But the alternative is to not cover things that we know from research and other things are vitally important. You know, where the rubber meets the road to wrap it up is some things that are really, really, really important don't have that high of an interest. And some things that are really, really important, like deep investigative work, take so much time that to do it right, we would say no to virtually everything else that people are asking for. So those are where the decisions are tough. And one of the interesting things, you know, when I went to journalism school, I, I never imagined that I would even care about how my newspaper made money. Um, in fact, there was this giant wall that you weren't even supposed to pay attention to what the advertising side cared about. And you didn't, you know, everybody used to criticize reporters for writing a story because that was just going to sell newspapers. I can't, I can't tell you how many times that never even crossed my mind because I would cover things over at the legislature that I knew not too many people would really care about reading, but if I didn't cover it, then those elected officials would know they weren't being watched, and I was going to be there just because it was right. something to do. So there's this situation that we are now in, and Skip refers to the, the digital audience as reporters 
we get reports on how often and how much our stories are read. So now my paper can not only track how, how many people are reading my stories, but they can tell me how far into the story they have read. And do you think that that affects my newsmaking decisions? And, right. and that is something I never imagined I'd be in. And here's a newsflash. What you say you want to read is not what you actually read. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we have the numbers and how deep and how yeah, long. Yeah, we know what you read, and it's not what you say you want to read. Right. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about Tallahassee as a news town, because, you know, we're the state capital, and so we have, there's two big enterprises going on here, right? We've got the local news, which is the car crashes and the school board and the stuff that happens in every town. And then we've got this big building back here with all of, you know, the politicians back. So we've got this double focus on how's the Democrat doing? Well, they're not covering that well. So it, it kind of becomes even more intense with the focus. And I do want Mary Ellen to speak to, you know, so that's another part of Tallahassee where the Democrat is trying to cover local. We do cover the state house too. Talk about the changes that we've seen over time in our sort of second hometown newspaper up at the Capitol, just in the general with the press corps. Well, so the Tallahassee press corps when I started was just like robust and on its peak peak. I think there were, during session, about 100 reporters. And, and you know, you not only had newspapers with a staff up here that filled the, the press center building, but we had people sending up. At my newspaper, we would send up two reporters on a rotating basis, and, you know, that was for session only. So there was this enormous amount of people covering what they were doing. Today, I think there are maybe 30 regular reporters on a regular basis, and during session maybe we're at 40. And honestly, that, that includes the legacy media, but there's also this new breed of online journalism that is some of which are only subscription, so not everybody gets to see what they write unless you've subscribed to them exclusively. And, and I think that that's exactly the reason I applied for this Neiman Fellowship is because I've watched as the decline in reporters is changing behavior. And the less, the fewer people there are to, to show up at these meetings, there's less demand for transparency. And I think it's had an effect on democracy, and I think it's had an effect on how government is practiced because more and more people, more elected officials just sort of like, no one's going to check, no one's going to bother. And, and I think when that happens, then, then we're in trouble. Well, we had talked the other day when we were, yeah, when we had talked the other day about this, what also happens is you used to have a big story in Tallahassee, and let's say the Democrat yeah. would break the story, then you'd have the Herald would do a version of their story, and you'd have seven or eight different versions in the state of the same story, and that would amplify it, right? Now, because we're in this resource situation where we all, all these news organizations have to make really hard choices about what we cover, we don't see that, right? I mean, you know, if the Herald's got it, well, the Herald's got it. Yeah. Anyone can go online, you know, if you pay your subscription price, see the Herald. So we then wouldn't duplicate that. So there's a lot of us all trying to do unique content, which I think what happens then is we lose things. So then you can hear like, well, the Tampa Bay Times had that story. Why don't you guys have that story? Well, we don't have that story because we want to do something else so, so we're not duplicating effort. And that's a big thing that goes on. I don't know if well, regular readers realize that that's kind of what we're doing because we're all guys, so thin. Do you guys all remember the, 
the trips and gifts scandal from the early 90s. So basically, the, the Tallahassee Democrat broke the story about the trips and gifts of some legislators getting a, a sweet deal from, from lobbyists. And my newspaper didn't have it, so we had to do our own version of it. And the uh, Orlando Sentinel and the Palm Beach Post and the Fort Lauderdale newspaper and Jack, every newspaper did their version of it until every legislator got looked at. And the result was they changed the law. And as much as you think that law may have been a mistake, at least it forced them to do something. Today, we are writing investigative stories. We did a story on the um, assisted living the, the, the abuse in assisted living communities in this state, and it took four years before the legislature even attempted to address that problem with any reforms. There's just no echo. There's no amplifying. Right. right. So that sort of explains why you guys might wonder, why did they? Because we just, because we can't. I mean, you know, we were talking about numbers. I know that when I started as news director at the Democrat, I found some ancient pile of papers, and in that ancient pile of papers, which wasn't really that ancient, which was, I think, from maybe 95, the number, it was like a, a staff list, and there were 70 people on that list, you know, and you could look at who all was gone, and now you just kept chopping them off, and there was, you know, maybe like 12 people left, right? So, you know, the newsroom has really shrunk locally, so we really do have to rely on what, how do we balance those resources? I mean, that, that is the, the landscape that we live in, and, you know, it really is challenging. So you've heard a lot about business models and stuff like that. What you haven't heard about is the secret newsroom meetings where we pick out people that we want to run out of office <laughs> and conspire to take them out, right? And uh, policy initiatives that where we... Uh, somehow are able to conspire with people in and out of government to bring about, you know, that's, uh, there's a lot of talk about, and I know, Liz, you've had panels on fake news and all, you know, the left and right version of those things. But if, you know, for us, it's really so comical because for a couple of reasons. One, we are not nearly smart enough to pull off the types of conspiracies of which we are accused, right? We're just not that bright. And uh, secondly, this back to this newspaper of record thing, there's so much coming at us. The idea that we're going to spend time to carefully craft headlines that manipulate people into thinking one thing or another, I mean, it is absolutely Lucy at the chocolate machine, right? <laughs> uh, that, that's every day and, and, and every weekend, you know, too, in the business. So, you know, the challenges we're facing, it's not to say that people aren't getting turned off and I understand that, but man, so much of it is smoke. And if you want to, in addition to supporting the Democrat and the Herald and any other uh, local news outlet uh, that you want with your time and dollars, you know, one thing you can do is just speak up when some of this, you know, craziness is being offered as the truth because it's just, I've never been a part of a meeting like that. Nobody at Gannett ever told me what our editorial philosophy should be, what kind of editorial to write. Nobody ever did that. Nobody at Gannett ever said, oh, well, we're for a certain issue, so go write stories on an issue. That stuff is just ludicrous. just doesn't happen. So anyway, glad to dispel <laughs> that 
myth now that I'm finally out of the industry. So I think we've, we've hammered home to death the resource conundrum that we are in, which we often have very little control under, over. But one of the other challenges that is really facing local newspaper is the rise in social media. And, you know, if you look at institutions in this community, you know, part of it is, is it the chicken or the egg, right? School board, they hire, spend a lot of money to have their own public information officer, uh, you know, U.S. attorney's office, state attorney's office. You know, all of our public entities now have these very robust, the city of Tallahassee, have their robust public information offices, which is okay, but in some ways we become irrelevant, right? Now, are they doing that because... We no longer have the staff to cover it as we used to, in part. But, I mean, can you speak a little bit to that social media landscape, Mary Ellen? You know, it's really interesting because when I started in Tallahassee, there were, you know, the the public information officers in state government, you know, there was maybe one at an agency. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a huge staff of them. And their whole idea was to help us get information. (laughs) Now... The whole reason for having a, it seems, to having a media staff at all in government is to be a watchdog and a gatekeeper of information. Like, we're, we're gonna manage the message. Yep. We're not Control gonna just message. give you access to the, me- to the information. And that, I think, has just changed the dynamic. So, when you have fewer resources, what happens is the people that are better at producing those press releases There was actually a study by Pew where they looked at the city of Baltimore and they found that there were more stories appearing in the paper that came from press releases than there were from independent news journalism in a city the size of Baltimore. Now, I'm sure if you're a public information expert, that's a great thing because you want to be able to control that message, but that's really bad for independent journalism and for, for independents generally. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we, I mean, I've really, really noticed it in my career that, and, and then it become, it really does become this, like, it's not public information anymore. It's like the PR wing of your local government that you as taxpayers are paying for. And, you know, there is an agenda there, and I don't mean to be mean to the wonderful <laughs> public information people, but it is, they call us angry if we dare go outside of their fly zone, and that's not an appropriate place for them to be. So I think that that's also a challenge, and that resonates with what you guys as readers end up seeing. You know, we have to be rely on them in some respect because we can't hit it all. And we do want to tell you when, you know, the trash day is or some, you know, kind of thing that is not, you know, maybe controversial in any way, that's okay, but, you know... There are things that surely probably need more scrutiny that we kind of end up relying on them, and it's sort of a vicious circle. So, you know, that's something also. I think one of the things that obviously is a huge issue for local media is the partisan nature of media right now with the cable news networks and us here in the Tallahassee Democrat and here locally. So can one of you take on how that has, the differences between the Tallahassee Democrats, say, and MSNBC are vast. Can someone expand? Yeah, I can talk about that. They're big. (laughs) No, what you're seeing sprout up. So look, MSNBC and Fox have a business model and good for them. So they want to have partisan coverage of the news. It's a mix of opinion, mostly opinion, a little bit of news. And if they want to do that, that's fine. Where I get a little discouraged is when I hear the term partisan journalism, right? 
To me, that's an oxymoron. If you're doing journalism, it should, by definition, be nonpartisan. It doesn't mean that partisan journalism doesn't have characteristics of journalism and that journalists aren't practicing. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. It doesn't mean that it's not a viable thing to do. But if you're doing something from a partisan viewpoint, if you're only writing negative stories on the governor or positive stories on the mayor and that, that's the only thing you do, well, then you're not really doing journalism. You're doing something else has characteristics of journalism. There might even be individual stories within your platform that would pass as completely balanced. But overall, if it's a point of view, it's not journalism, which is a terribly important distinction other than if it's squeezing out what I would call real journalism, that's not a good thing. And so preserving truly nonpartisan journalism, I think, is a vital mission for the republic. Let's face it. There's no shortage of partisan outlets for you to get information, right? If you're having trouble finding any, just let me know. I can direct you <laughs> to the right way. But there is increasingly, I mean, so what would you identify, don't say it out loud, but just in your head, as a truly nonpartisan news outlet? And my guess is we'd get a few different answers, but they're not as easy to come up with as if I asked you the uh, inverse question, and I think you could rattle them off one after the other. So it's a problem, not because there's something wrong with those, but because if we don't preserve truly nonpartisan journalism, it's, I think, dangerous to the republic. Well, you know, you, it's an interesting point because there are some studies. There is not a lot of research into what happens to communities when they lose their local news sources, but there is research that looks at what's happening to communities that are becoming more polarized, and what they've concluded is many of those communities have lost their news sources. So, for example, there was a study out of the University of Texas that looked at, they wanted to find out why are local, some local communities becoming more partisan, even if they're like nonpartisan races, people are voting along, there's, there's less split ticket voting, and their conclusion was in those communities, there is less coverage of local news. So what happens is when there is more coverage of local government, people learn about, you know, this city commissioner. I agree with them some of the time. I agree with them. I disagree with them some of the time. But he's, he's not in my party. So you know what? There's somebody from another party that I can agree with some of the time. When you lose that, you lose the ability to kind of moderate and understand what where the middle is and and that's where there there's research that shows that there's more split ticket voting in communities that have lost their local newspaper there's less voter engagement which means that because there's less coverage of local government so people are like they don't care so it's really having an effect i mean we we the loss of local news is having a direct effect on how people view their government you know, balance in news is by definition reaching out for contrary information, right? Who's doing that in our society right now? It's the opposite. It's the echo chamber. And if you disagree with me, it's shameful, right? You should be ashamed for having this view where 50% of the people think one way or the other, right? I mean, it's like amazing that we're so willing to just cast aside tens of millions of people. And so... You know, journalism helps identify both sides of 
of issues. And when you lose that, man, it just really oversimplifies things and leads to shouting, not thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the victory is always like, you know, we would say in the newsroom, like you want everyone to be mad at you, right? Like, and you don't want anyone to be mad at you, but, you know, you want the, the developer that you're writing the story about their development that's, you know, causing all these environmental problems and the neighbors who are, you know, community is being destroyed by this to both read that article and feel that they were fairly represented. And to me, that is what we're supposed to be doing every day, and that's our standard of that, so that they know that they were heard. And that's what I think local journalism can do really well, And because we do know with people in our community. So, you know, it's like shame on us if we don't try. Shame on them if we give them an opportunity and neither side wants to play. I mean, I, there's been a million times my phone is rung and people have been angry that I had the other side in the story. And I'm like, well, hey, I'm sorry, but that's kind of the way this works. Like... But I, I think that people have expectations about it. But I think particularly now it's really important. It seems really simple. But I think when we see it in our news coverage, we ought to applaud it and we ought to be happy to see it and kind of reward it and hold it up as, remember, this is what it's supposed to look like because we don't see a lot of it right now. And I want to go back to one quick thing on the revenue piece. You know, I was just reading a Ken Doctor's thing today that you sent me, Skip, about the 20 things. And I, it was very long. I didn't read it all. <laughs> Um, about looking ahead, 2020, looking ahead at like big things are going to be happening in the industry. And, you know, companies like the New York Times, they are killing it right now. They are making a ton of money, and they are making a lot of money on their subscription model. And as Marianne was saying before, and I'll shut up because I'm a moderator, but I have lots of thoughts, is that, you know, we didn't have to worry about that in the newsroom. Like, we just wanted to write stories, fair stories, do investigations, explain the community. You know, increasingly... Newsrooms carry the burden of subscriptions. And I mean, that's just a realistic thing. If you read Jeff Burlew's stuff or Netta's stuff, you know, we put little things in there. Please subscribe. I mean, that's like for real. Like, that's how that's going to work. Like, you know, like, why is the New York Times seem to be everywhere and how so robust and people are loving their stuff is because they have hired scads of reporters and they're making a lot of money based on subscriptions. So, like, we all kind of bear some responsibility to that, and that's my piece on that. <laughs> so, amid all of this bleakness, where do we go? What does local journalism look like going forward with this massive consolidation that just happened with our paper? And what do you Go think? ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those times disruption creates experimentation. And um, so there's a lot of models out there that are trying to do something new. We've got... You know, a lot of niche journalism where locally people start up something and they're just, just going to focus on City Hall. Um, there's, there's many things all across the country. But the one thing that is pretty constant is there's not a lot of money behind any of it in terms of commercial. So most of it is not-for-profit. Now, there's a model that seems to be the most effective, and that is something that's been around for a really long time, and that's the public radio model, which is it's nonprofit, it's subscription, but it also takes some philanthropy, foundation money, and then sponsors, which is like classic advertising, but they don't call it advertising. That's kind of this hybrid model. The Texas Tribune is doing that pretty successfully. Then there's like the billionaire benefactors that have, <laughs> you know, Jeff Bezos buys the Washington Post. The right. Washington Post turns itself around and is, is killing it. 
you've got, you know, the LA Times has a billionaire, the, the Minneapolis uh, Star and Tribune has a billionaire owner, and now the Philadelphia Inquirer yeah. has a billionaire. So Is anybody here a any, billionaire? Right, because we'll take a billionaire. Billionaires, raise uh, your hand, please. Raise your hand. The benevolent dictators will take them. Mm, okay, shoot. You know what, do you think you, think you could do it with... Less than a billion? Hundred millionaires, <laughs> raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, th- that's, never works. Yeah, that's that's kind of where we are on, on things. Now, there, you know, the nonprofit model is an interesting one. We'll see how that's. The hope is that people can start these and then they sustain themselves after they've been given some found, foundation money for a while. But I think we're in this uncertain place. I don't think journalism is going to disappear. It's just it's just going to be funded differently, right? And maybe in pockets. I don't know. I mean, and in, and maybe in niches, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the there was just a story today. Some women left the left left the Texas Tribune. Now they started this kind of women focused uh, enterprise. They're on, be on, going to be on the Washington Post platform for the next six months or so. Mm-hmm. Five million dollars. They're going to hire seventeen people. They're going to cover uh, U.S. Capitol news. You know, looking at women and gender issues. That's great. Now, that's not really going to help us in Tallahassee. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so you wonder how that works. I mean, right now, the grand experiment is, is the mega merger, and there's still room for the mega mergers because, you know, there's well, still... The scary thing to me is that in 2004, one out of eight journalists were, were in New York, L.A., or D.C. Ten years later, it was one out of four. So that basically shows that the concentration of journalists and where it's working is places like D.C. Mm-hmm. So rather than choosing, their model wasn't to choose a regional focus like Texas. Their model was to go to D.C. and look for the national focus on the niche of gender reporting. You know, I think that's great, but that doesn't do a lot for our local, what, what we're talking about here. And and hopefully we can find a way to find and and make it commercially successful, you know, bringing up the local journalism that that we all value. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, no one has cracked the code for local legacy newspapers on how to make that make money. I think that, you know, just on the real local level is the new company, the new Gannett, is, you know, saying publicly that they aren't going to be not firing reporters or editors. So uh, hopefully, you know, that's a good thing. But we know that there will be lots of people who lose their jobs, you know, in other parts of that industry. Liz is gesticulating wildly Well, and I have very me. bad vision, so you have to be a little bit more Tell me what bold. that meant. <laughs> oh. Well, can we take questions soon? Let's bring up Bob and Steve. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Um, so actually, I do have a question that's relevant to your conversation about the business model. Okay. So what percentage of income is sent up to the parent company? I have read that the fact that the Wall Street, Wall Street investors buying local papers and taking out as much money as possible is another huge factor in killing local papers. And I actually have a second part to that that I wonder about is, is there a model where the community can support part of a newspaper that has corporate ownership. So in other words, so there's a nonprofit model and there's corporate ownership. Is there is there oh. any kind of split where like we in the community can make sure that, you know, that there're more journalists or, you know, whatever. Well, the, the answer to the first question is uh, Gannett and McClatchy are publicly traded companies, right? Um, and point. so they have uh, stockholders of varying sizes and like every other publicly traded company that you frequent, 
they're responsible for a certain level of profit. I mean, it's just kind of business 101 there. So newspapers aren't any different than McDonald's or Ford or or uh, anybody like that. In terms of the hybrid solution, I don't know. Well, the Salt Lake City Tribune yeah. did something. Converted, yeah. yeah. This is, to me, the future. So mm-hmm. McClatchy, when I started, I don't know what their shares were trading at, but they were a lot more than they are today. When McClatchy told the federal government a couple weeks ago that it's worked out an agreement because it's re- it, it doesn't have the money to pay for its pension obligation, uh, its next pension obligation, so it worked out an agreement with the federal government to sort of figure out a reorganization plan. Well, we don't know what that's going to look like yet, but because of that news, the McClatchy stock doubled, and it went from $0.06 cents to $0.12 cents a share. Um, this, to me, is a sign that this company doesn't need to be, you know, it, it's almost bottomed out. So what the Salt Lake City Tribune did is its owners bought out the remaining shares, and they asked the, the IRS if they could become nonprofit. And and the, even though they thought that this IRS was going to be very antagonistic towards media, and they thought it was going to it was going to take three years for this decision to come down, the decision came down in three months, and they were allowed to become a nonprofit. So now the Salt Lake City Tribune right. is is a not for profit, and it can instead of giving all it, you know what's left of its profits to some shareholders and family members, they can re, reinvest it. Now, they still have to become successful and profitable, and they cannot write, do endorsements of candidates anymore. But, you know, hey, that's a trade-off. Yeah, it's no big deal. <laughs> no, but, I mean, I saw that, and that, that is like you think, that's maybe that's the way, you yeah. know? Because yeah. part of the thing that has been always difficult when you are a newspaper under corporate ownership is that, you know, it's the year over your gains, you know? And back when we were printing money, that was no problem. But now, you know, it is not realistic. And so, you know, while we still make money, we don't make enough money. And you can never get ahead of that boulder. So. Another question? So another question related to this. So, Skip, if you get your billionaire here tonight. Yes. Okay. <laughs> if they're being kind of quiet so far. Mm-hmm. That with a trend towards uh, ownership like that, how do you keep the nonpartisan, independent nature of the newspaper instead of it being slanted toward the view of the owner? Well, you don't accept money from people who want to put their finger on the scale. So you either say, I'm fine with, uh, you know, operating a news outlet on the whims of a probably, you know, eccentric billionaire, because they're all eccentric, right? How did that work? There's no, like, boring billionaires. They're all eccentric. Uh, Or you say, hey, you know, you need to treat journalism like a performing art, and uh, uh, we sustain the arts because it's important to our society, and we sustain journalism because it's vital to our republic. You know, when it comes to supporting it financially, I have no doubt that if a billionaire walked in, bought the Tallahassee Democrat, uh, hired me back to be the publisher of a nonpartisan, now for-profit uh, organization, and we needed community support, you know, in this room, we'd have a pretty high percentage of people willing to pay $100 a year, $500 a year to keep local journalism going. 
The problem, as we surfaced at a meeting uh, we had prepping for this, is that the, the uh, you know, those kids, as I stand out on my lawn shaking my newspaper, um, are a little less eager, to put it charitably, to pay for, you know, much of anything, and in particular, news content. So... Presumably, these young folks walk into Chick-fil-A and just demand free sandwiches. No, I'm teasing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so that is actually a real, that's a real thing, right? The younger set, I mean, and we see this all the time, and it's just so astonishing when somebody posts on Facebook, why did you post this on Facebook if you're going to make me go pay for the story? You know, as if... All these reporters are just um, magically, you know, harvesting their salaries off of the magic tree of money. And so, you know, we, we, we've got to find a way to make sure young folks understand the, the core importance of journalism to the republic. Some people don't buy that. They think that's ridiculous and that the republic will be just fine. Well, there's, uh, there's, they're another, wrong. there's another option, and that is the guys that's, that made this work that, you know, we're the producers of the content, but all the content's going on Google, it's going on Facebook, mm-hmm. it's going on Twitter, and is Twitter, Facebook, and Google paying us for that content? No. What are they doing? They are, they are tracking what you're reading, how much you're reading, how often you're reading, and they're sending you the ads of all the stuff you just had a conversation with somebody on your cell phone that, you know, you're, you're talking about going to a movie, now you're seeing the movie ads. Or you're, they're, they're watching you. They're watching everything about you, and they're not giving us any money for that content. So maybe that's where we, you know, right. maybe there's a need to regulate, ask the platforms to own up a little bit. And part of the thing to the initial question was, I mean, it's about transparency. I mean, you, you know, you don't have people who insist on having editorial control, but you also be very incredibly transparent about where all your money is coming from. I mean, you put their names on it so that there can be no, you know, gotchas about it. But Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good point. I have a question from a fellow young person in the audience. It's not me, someone else. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think journalism needs from the next generation of writers, and how can we help to save the industry? All I can say, first first I will say, anybody who is a young person going into journalism is deserves, like, hero status. You know, for somebody who wants to, they want to do it because they want to do it. It's not because they see that there's a giant future ahead of them. There's no certainty. So all I can say is if somebody who wants to go and is young and is in journalism, they have my great respect. More than ever, incredibly thick skin. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, it's, and I'm not saying it for pity, it's rough. And, you know, I look around at the journalists that I worked with, I finally got the past tense in there, and they are some of the finest people I know that get some of the most terrible things said about them that you can imagine. I'm not talking about criticism, even deserved criticism or undeserved. I'm talking about hateful, threatening, awful things. It's why the Democrat has always been a partner with Village Square, because it's promoting the type of discourse that we um, need more of. You can play a role there, because I know every single one of you has seen it somewhere on Facebook or social media, 
And even if we did something knuckleheaded, which we have, will, and are going to keep doing because we're, you know, human beings, step in and give these guys the benefit of the doubt, okay? Step in and give them the benefit of the ideological doubt, of the, you know, inaccuracy doubt, of judgment, all the kind of mistakes that we're susceptible to. But if you're not willing to be abused, and I mean, I'm not, that's not an exaggeration, then you're not ready to be a journalist. Ouch. It's okay, really, if you want to do it. Um, <laughs> no. I'm, no we, I mean, you know, I've got three children, and I know exactly which ones could do it and which ones couldn't. And look, it's a real thing, and it, it's you can help. You can help. And not just with journalists, but all the other you know, political leaders and all the other people that are getting hated. Uh, but there's certainly, you know, we're right up there with umpires and lawyers and, you know, people <laughs> I, like that. I would say also, just real quick to the young person, because I think I know the young person who asked that question. Hi, young person. Oh, sorry, um, young person. Is that the young, I work with a lot of young journalists who have just started, and these journalists are smarter than I ever was. Yeah. I yeah. mean, they're just so totally. bright yeah. and together. And like, I'm like, whoa, you're going to be so amazing. I'm glad I'll be dead when you're so great. Like, <laughs> so it's incredibly inspiring to be around them. They know a lot. I'm really, I mean, every day mm -hmm. we work with so many cool young reporters. The other thing is, though, I think young reporters need to be professionals. Like, do your homework. I mean, you know, keep your copy clean and know how to write a sentence and use strong verbs and, you know, like be a, a faithful carrier of the written word because that's what you're doing. So, I mean, because that's where I, the only place I can fault them really, you know, not fault them, but, you know, I'm like, boy, you're, you get to write this stuff, like be into the writing. So that would be my advice. Well, also reflect your generation because we need, we need to be writing for it. Yeah. So here's, here's a two-parter, and then after that you can invite um, the rest of our panel up. Is it inevitable that you get these great young cub reporters and that they'll want to leave local journalism? And how do you keep them? And the second part, this is progress on your billionaire. Somebody wants to know exactly if there were a benefactor here in this room, financially give us an estimate. What would it take to support the newspaper? No, I don't know the answer to that one. Uh, I, mean, I, don't, I mean, I don't even, I don't think they Yeah, I it. wouldn't presume to, that's a, see me afterward. You said a hundred million. hundred million. Yeah, Whoever see me in the, uh, see skip after. Paul, who, what was the first one again? The first one was, you've got these wonderful young reporters. Is it inevitable that we lose them? How do we keep them? Yeah, well, that's a constant issue. I mean, that that's not a, necessarily a function of the business realities of, or the current business realities. That's something that's faced newspapers and lots of other businesses for a long time. You know, bigger jobs are in bigger cities, generally speaking. So you either get promoted where you are or you jump to a bigger place, right? You jump, if you're working at, at uh, you know, Wells Fargo, well, they got a big, you know, branch in Charlotte, a big headquarters there. And so that's always a thing. And you're just basically, you know, that it's do individuals care enough about, you know, care so much about the community they want to stay or are they ambitious and want to make more money? Maybe they didn't have any ties to the community in the first place. So I don't think that's as much tied to the business realities as it is. Yeah, I know. also I also think, you know, when you're in a smaller community, community there's more of a give and take and you know you know the people you're covering which 
you actually, it, it, it makes it easier for you to be fair. And it's, it's more fun when you have an impact. So one of the best things about being in a, in a smaller, at a smaller place is you actually can't, you know the impact that you have. And if you want, if you're in it because you can make a difference, you can see the difference you can make. You write for a bigger news organization, you're one, you know, one little fish in a giant pond. So it, it depends on what you want out of it. So yeah. if, you know, my hope is that people will want to stay because you can, you know, in a smaller place, you can have a bigger impact. Right. I mean, you want some of them, you don't want everyone to stay because not everyone yeah. should stay. I mean, yeah. you know, there are some that the place really resonates with them and that's, you know, where they, you know, I've spent long chunks of time in, you know, two communities because I, I really got into that. I love that part. But there are ones, you want them to go on, you know, you can't. Got to bring in new people. They need to move on, spread their wings. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to be able to see people like go off and go off, little <laughs> little dove fly. You know, that's awesome. But you know, the, the ones who stay in communities do become the bedrock. I think of communities, and we are very fortunate here at this newspaper to have some of those people who mm-hmm. have been here for decades, and it really helps the quality of the work. Oh, and I'm inviting up. Uh, so it's time for me to invite Bob? Bob Sanchez. And Steve Stewart, up to the conversation. Hi again, it's Vanessa, your podcast host. Sorry to have to break in here. I bet y'all are on the edge of your seats, ready to hear from Bob Sanchez and Steve Stewart. And you should be, because they offer more very interesting perspectives for us to consider. Check it out. So I'm excited about the future and the opportunities to get the news out there. I think there's a number of things that have to change within the news industry First of all, and again, I respect journalists uh, immensely. The the problem is, and this is coming from a free market guy, capitalism has ruined journalism. And it's because journalism, for the most part, is a public good. If you go back and look, John Collins started the Tallahassee Democrat back in the mid-1800s. It was owned by individuals in the community until 1965. And that's what it's going to sort of, I think, going to boomerang back to. Please join us in two weeks for part two as we continue the discussion about the state of the industry. We talk about the Associated Press and niche journalism, the issue of truth, and the best part, creative ideas for the future. And not all of them require billionaires. Also, have you ever wondered about the people behind the Tallahassee Democrats articles? Well, we get a quick rundown of our local journalists and their specialties from William Hatfield, Tallahassee Democrats editor. Before we close out, I wanted to mention something that recently happened in our community that's a real-life example of what Skip described about how journalists are treated and how we should all try to give them the benefit of the doubt and speak up when we see others not doing that. Well, Skip just had the opportunity to put his money where his mouth is, and of course, he rose to the occasion. Here's an excerpt from one of his recent Facebook posts about something that happened locally. Today, the worlds of news, advertising, production, and fragmented operations collided. A stick-on ad for Rocky Hanna appeared on the front page of the paper, and as fate would have it, the ad appeared right over a picture of the face of Jill Biden from her campaign appearance in Tallahassee. So you guys, I get the digital paper, so I didn't know about this until the Facebook post, but apparently the conspiracy theories just went wild, and some folks were really upset about this and questioned the Democrats' motives. So Skip went on in his Facebook post to share what happens behind the scenes and what an incredible amount of coordination it would take to even attempt to pull something like this off. 
And based on what he knows, he's 100% certain it was an unfortunate coincidence. I've heard Skip talk several times before about how the paper does not have the time, the skill, or the desire to participate in conspiracy theories like this, or even skew things toward a particular agenda. When something like this happens during a time when emotions are already so hot, it's especially important to take a pause. Consider what else could have caused it to happen. Give people the benefit of the doubt, especially when you haven't heard their side. And also, as Skip requested us to do in this program, speak up when you see stuff like this happen. Be an advocate for journalism so that we can hold on to this critical piece of our democracy. So on that note, thanks to all of our panelists and to all journalists out there for their dedication to this important work. I hope you enjoyed this discussion about local press, and I hope you'll join us again for part two coming out in two weeks. Please subscribe to Village Squarecast in your favorite podcast app or on our website so you see this episode when it comes out and everything else that will be released with our new year of programming. Go to tlh.villagesquare.us slash squarecast to subscribe online or to see the show notes page for this episode. And to see all that's happening with the Village Square, subscribe to our newsletter at tlh.villagesquare.us. This podcast is still relatively new, so reviews are especially important to us. We'd be so grateful if you'd take just a minute to give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you listening to a local press. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.